Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Well, look at this. Last weekend in February. Wow, it is just flying by. In fact, I hope you get some rest this weekend because you've only got one more weekend after this to sleep in because it's two weeks to go till your clocks spring forward. Oh, don't you just, you can't wait for that one, I'll bet. So right now it would be four o'clock, not three o'clock. And, um, you know, I always get a kick out of these stats. 25 days to spring? Really? Based on the weather we've been having, you know, I'm I'm thinking May. Uh, but you know what? That's what the groundhog said. Well, that's what he said anyways. But we'll see. We'll see what will happen. Uh, I've got a great show planned for you uh, this hour. Um, lots to talk about. Uh, I've got uh, a professional realtor, uh, Sean Ziggelstein, out of uh, Royal Page. He's going to be joining me a little bit later on in the hour. Uh, I've got Romana King. And, of course, you will have heard Romana King here on the Talk Triangle that I do with Greg Bennell and myself uh, every month. And uh, we're going to be talking about the West Coast. We're going to be talking about some fraud. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. And um, in a little while, I'm going to be joined by a professional property manager. We're going to have a great conversation and some advice to tenants. But speaking of tenants, um, something in the news today uh, that I caught. And um, But you know what? Before I go there, I think I, uh, I want to remind everybody, because I always forget to do this and... I always get in my ear, Ian, saying, hey, don't forget about the Simple Seminar. It's coming up this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks, Ian. I know it is this Wednesday at 7 p.m. That is February the 27th. You don't want to miss it. It's the Simple Seminar, and it's at 7 p.m. here at our head office. Go to thesimpleinvestor.com to register. We're going to be talking about tenants. We're going to talk about investment real estate, who makes the best tenants, some of the rules and regulations. We're going to talk about cannabis. And uh, we're also going to talk about uh, the final part of our release here right now in 2019. Really exciting. Can you imagine a three-bedroom rental condo for only $142.9? That's it. Yeah, you, you don't want to miss out. Go to the simpleinvestor.com. Make sure you register and you can figure it out. But one of the things that caught my eye uh, this week was something that I wanted to talk about. So it's uh, it was a, a, an article, and it said, uh, Parkdale tenants face forced move out from longtime home. And they said, the renters uh, say that you didn't know they were signing an end-of-the-tenancy document. And it's about a uh, it's about a landlord who they, they had bought the property recently, and they were able to get the tenant to sign a Form. Now, a couple of things that we need to talk about, uh, and this is just for some tenant knowledge, is it's very important that tenants know, first and foremost, that um, you don't have to sign uh, forms on the spot ever, okay? First and foremost, you must understand that if you need to get legal advice, if you have to reach out to the Landlord-Tenant Board to find out what your rights are, go online, whatever's necessary, you don't have to sign the form on the spot. Now, Keep in mind that a lot of these forms, right on the very top header, it will tell you what it is. And, you know, I'm not disagreeing with what uh, this one tenant had said, and they've lived there about 20 years, but they said, you know, we don't, uh, we're not great with English, and we thought we were just signing an extension. Well, you know, that that is the, you know, sometimes I, they call it buyer beware, I would say tenant beware. Uh, when you sign documentation, if it's your lease, if it's going to be some kind of addendum to your lease, you need to read it before you sign it. Because quite frankly, unless the landlord had a gun to your head and you signed it, 
it becomes a legal document and it's very difficult and it could be quite arduous and cost you money to be able to fight it. And so I would definitely caution people when they get themselves in this position. Uh, one other note though, there was somebody that actually was a superintendent in this building and part, and, and, and I'm not sure because the article didn't quite make it clear, but if you are a superintendent and you are living in the building and part of your compensation is actually a rental apartment, when you get terminated from your employment, so does your tenancy. You are not a tenant. This was an incentive to an employment situation. And you have to understand this. So I know a lot of people are out there you know, in some of the smaller buildings and that's part of their compensation. If you weren't a tenant first, if you came in and you were awarded a unit as part of your compensation, folks, you have seven days to move out and that's the law. And so before you start uh, looking at some of these things, you may want to turn around and up your compensation and say, no, I'm going to be a tenant. And then that way, if I'm no longer an employee, then I get to keep my tenancy. Cause if it's part of the package, you will have the right to be removed. I'm going to bring in now a expert in property management, Mr. Mike Sackman from Cyreg Management. Thanks, Todd, for having me. A real pleasure having you on. Uh, Mike, as a professional property manager for years now, um, you've got a lot of experience dealing as a landlord, but most importantly with tenants. And I have to tell you, things in this world of landlord and tenants, it, it, it's gotten almost to a point of being polar opposite. And and it's better that we kind of get everybody on the same page and, and we create relationships. And I thought we, you maybe you and I can have a quick chat about, you know, creating the relationship for tenants and some of the things that we can set as far as expectations for them, you know, which they'll experience for most landlords. So what, uh, what typically when, when somebody is applying, you know, uh, to, to rent a property, what are some of the things uh, that most landlords will look at? Um, landlords look at, um, you know, where have they been living? Uh, why, why do they want to move? Um, how long have they been living there? Um, are they are they moving because their job has changed? Uh, are they moving because they don't like the neighborhood? Um, you know, we try to make it a positive experience for them and and hope that they'll they'll move in with us and stay with with us for a long time. That's yeah. what we look for. You know, that that's I, I think that's a great point because a lot of times, you know, um, you know, landlords face expenses when if you have a tenant that just moves in for six months or a year and then they move out because then the landlord's now responsible, you know, for, for doing necessary cleaning, you know, getting it ready, potentially having a vacancy. Um, is there, is there something that tenants can do to encourage landlords to, you know, take a good look at their, their, um, you know, uh, offer to lease? The tenants, a lot of them will, will tell you where they've been living, how good they are, uh, unless you actually go and and see where they've been living, you really don't know how you know they were living in in the current situation they're in. And there, there's again more factors that that come into play. Are they splitting up? Are they divorcing? Are they separating? There's all those factors that come into play. Yeah, of course. And there's people that are retiring. And when people come in, and and again, this is you know people that are you know potentially renting for their first time or maybe their second. But when when you take a look at at an application uh, to rent, you know they they give you permission to do a credit report. Um, what are some of the things 
that landlords typically will look for when looking over an application? You mentioned, you know, how long did they live at their last place? But what about the financial aspect of things? The other thing that landlords will look at is their job. Are they moving from their current location because their job is required to do so or they're changing jobs? The typical landlord will also look for how long have they been at that job? Have they been there five years, six years, 10 years? What are their payment terms? Do they pay their rent on time, their job? Is it conducive to where they want to move to? That's typically what what you would look for. That plays into your credit report where the landlord will typically, you know, when they do a credit check or they'll ask the applicant coming in, you know, what's your credit like is one of the questions because we will do a credit check and that is what a typical landlord will do. Most tenants will say, oh, I have one for you and I do have good credit or some will answer you with, I have no clue what my credit is. Uh, I do pay my bills on time, but I don't know how to do a credit report. I've never checked into it. That's one of those, I think, uh, situations that a lot of people, if they haven't actually checked their credit before, they're not aware of what they look like to both a lender or a landlord. And if if we're to gauge on how things are read, how do you gauge on, let's say, a credit score? If a person doesn't know what it is, the landlord will try to coach them through it. And they'll basically say, well, you can go on to Equifax.ca. You can pull your own credit report typically to an individual. There's no charge. Sometimes there is a small charge for it. The question could be, do you own a car? Do you pay for it monthly? Well, if you pay for it monthly, you obviously had your credit report pulled by the lender. Then they would have, you know, let you know that based on that number, it's call it 700, is a good credit score, which is a baseline, which typically what an actual landlord will go after to make sure that all your payments are in turn, your hydro, your gas, your regular payments are done on time. That's typically what a landlord will look for. Now, when we talk about things such as first and last month's rent, you know, years ago, people used to say that they wanted a security deposit for damages. Again, province of Ontario does not allow that, but the the landlord is entitled to first and last month's rent. Um, you know, what, what can a tenant expect uh, when they move in for most properties? Uh, you know, do, is, there, is there some kind of, you know, inspection report? What, what do people do? When a tenant gets moved into their apartment, they provide, you know, the landlord with their first month, like you said, and then they get a walk through to the apartment, which they've previously inspected or, or been shown, and hopefully they get the same apartment. They'll be provided with a move-in inspection report. It'll be explained that this is how you move into the unit. If you're here for couple of years. We've cleaned the unit, we've painted it. The landlord, whoever that company is, has done some work, whether it's just a simple paint job or they may have renovated the unit entirely. And that landlord would like to have that unit back in the same condition or similar condition. So this is why the inspection report gets filled out and signed by the landlord and the tenant. So the tenant is aware that if there are any damages, they will be responsible for that at the end of their lease. Well, listen, Mike, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Uh, We'll definitely touch base in the spring. We're keeping our eye on the whole tenant-landlord situation. And if anything changes, we'll, uh, we'll bring you back on. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Todd. Folks, that was my... Mike Sackman from Cyrag Management. And coming up after the break, I've got Sean Ziegelstein joining me. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. Uh, so my guest now is a uh, sales representative in the Toronto real estate market. And he's from Royal LePage, your community realty. And it is Sean Ziegelstein. And Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
Sean, one of the one of the things that uh, I'm hoping that you and I can you know talk about today, of course, is there was an announcement that the Toronto area real estate market is off to a pretty good start this year. And since you're on the ground and running every day, I thought I'd uh, bring you on and and uh, you know get your take on it. Uh, what is happening in the market right now? Well, I, I really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, yes, the, the market, we're in seasonal market right now. We are in the January, February type of market. So the winter uh, type of uh, typical market seasonal activity that we've seen in years past, I think we're now starting to see a little bit more. So we are starting to see that little bit of a dip in the winter market not in a necessarily a price standpoint, but from a volume standpoint. So, you know, our numbers this past month in January were up over January of 2018, but it was a minimal increase. And I think that's a good sign because what it shows is stability in the marketplace. It shows that what we're seeing is uh, people still looking, people are still wanting to buy properties. And really what they're doing is looking at the product, making sure it's the right one for them, and then purchasing at that point. You know, one of the things that I think is a positive note, though, is that we've got uh, more listings on this year uh, at this time than we did last year. And I think that that gives, you know, the buyers a little bit more selection, maybe not the same heat thinking multiple offers, you know, because I think I think we got to such a heated point, uh, you know, a couple years ago that people just got scared out of the marketplace. But now, you know, with a little bit more inventory, a little bit more selection. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you there. I I think with more uh, more selection, of course, gives more choice. And with more choice, then the sellers can actually put their properties on the market and be specific on, you know, what they're, you know, listing at. But at the same time, it's it's a little bit in the buyer's control that they've got those choices to make over last year. And I think last year was a very interesting market at the beginning of 2018 with new mortgage regulations that were put into place, as well as just different um, thoughts on the market, we'll call it, that buyers and sellers both had because they were used to 2017 and they had to get used to that. And I think now 2017 is gone. And so that influx of, you know, all the buyers that were coming and running into the multiple offer situations like you were talking about, they're not in, you know, the market as much as they were. We are still seeing some multiple offers, especially down in the city core. Uh, but once we get out into the suburbs, we're not seeing it as often. Let's talk a, a couple of different price points because, you know, I've always thought that there is a cycle to real estate. You you have your first-time home buyer, then you have your first-time home seller, then that creates your move-up buyer, and yeah. then you have a move-up seller, or you have a seller that's downsizing because they've gone, gone to their final home and now they're going to downsize to get out of it. Let's start off with our first-time home buyer market, of course, you know, uh, very much driven by the condominium market, especially in the Toronto core area. Uh, that's been a, a big part of it. Are we seeing consistency here? Are we seeing that, you know, that market is staying steady and busy? Oh, definitely. Look, the condo market in the city, um, while, it, while it has um, slowed, I would say, a little bit, and that, again, is probably more seasonal than anything else, that is where first-time home buyers are able to purchase property. They can afford to go buy a detached home um, in the city core, so they're, of course, looking for condominiums, low type of uh, price point that they can get into and live in and and figure it it would be a three to five year move. Um, What I always call it is the domino effect, right? So if people are buying those units, then of course those units have to go on sale more often and then people can move up just like you said 
to those next steps, whether it's a town or a semi and then up to a detach. So we do have that domino effect that takes place. Um, and we do know that the market has been fueled by the condo market over the last couple of years. Yeah, it seems like that was that kind of over overtook what normally was one of the hotter parts of the market, which was, as you mentioned, towns, semis, and detached. Um, you know, something worth note, though, is that they believe that the detached market this year is probably going to be the one that will lag behind the most, that the condominium market is probably going to be the strongest, though that could be the pent-up demand of first-time home buyers coming into the market for the first time. So, of course, brand new construction. We're seeing, we'll see some some major projects that are going to start closing. So people are going yep. to take ownership. We're going to see, might see some more rental properties come into the market. Um, but if we talk about the detached market, you know, this was normally the part of the market that we could really watch the spring cycle. You know, we started seeing the open houses pop up. Uh, right about now. I mean, the weather's been a little bit restrictive, obviously. But, you know, now we start seeing, you know, open house signs pop up. We start seeing the spring market. And, of course, when we start thinking of detached homes, we think of families. And families, of course, focus on moving in the summer because we normally are worried about the school year. Do you think that we're going to see, you know, our, our standard spring market where we start seeing more of the detached or, for that matter, townhomes and semis come in? I think you're going to see a lot of everything hit the market. That, that's my gut feeling at this point. Uh, just from the action that we're seeing on our listings out there and the product that is moving, I think we still will get a lot of new listings that are going to hit the market. And I think the new listing numbers, once they start to come out, once we get through the spring, uh, I think will be up over last year. Uh, the question will be is whether or not the buyers are willing to start buying at that point as well. Uh, I do agree that I think that the condo market will still continue to fuel the growth, especially with all of these new projects that will be uh, closing and, and coming into uh, into the marketplace. And I think detached are very interesting because detached uh, over year over year, we are seeing decreases um, in the 416 area. Uh, the 905 area is basically flat, uh, but we are seeing a lot of product that's just not selling um, outside of the city core. So when we're getting that into positioning, I think we'll see a little bit of a downward effect on those prices of the high-end detached homes simply because of the fact that those move-up buyers aren't necessarily jumping as quickly as the sellers would hope they would be. Sean, if uh, if our listeners want to reach out to you, what is, where is the best place for them to reach you? So the best place to find me is uh, they can uh, take a look at our website. So it's www.teamzold.com and uh, they can hit the contact us button and we'll reach out to them as soon as uh, they reach out to us. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's a great pleasure and hopefully we'll uh, we'll get back in touch with you in the spring and we can kind of test the market at that time. Enjoy your weekend and uh, have a great day. Folks, that was Sean Ziegelstein and he's from Royal LePage, your community realty. And um, when we come back after the break, I've got Romana King joining me. We're going to talk about the West. We're going to talk about money laundering. And so you don't want to miss out. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. Uh, my uh, next guest is uh, no stranger to the show. In fact, she's kind of a regular with me when we do our real estate talk triangle. And it is Ramana King. And she is the director of content at Zolo. Real estate expert, you know, kind of my go-to person, to, especially on the West Coast. And uh, Ramana, thanks so much for joining me. So good to be here. 
You know, it's interesting. Whenever you and I have just even a few minutes to talk about real estate, just we we just it's like a chatterbox. It's just we keep going, you know. And there's so much to talk about. And and even though you know, I think you know, we try to talk about once a month. I think that we could talk every day because there's always something evolving. And uh, this week, you know, one of the big big things in the news was that uh, Vancouver is going to be surpassed by Montreal yeah. as the second largest housing. Right? I mean, I I don't think Romani, you know, you you know, I've been playing real estate uh, for a long, long time. I don't think those were words that we would ever ever think we would be saying. Oh, I you know what? If I could have you know predicted that, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I would have uh, certainly done some different uh, real estate decisions, but that's the thing is it's it really is at a left left wing, right? But it's it's I think in part what we're seeing is what we all talked about last year, the money moving from west to the east. And when I say money, I mean investment money, and that's either domestic investors or foreign investors. But it's people that realize that Canada as a whole is a great place to own real estate. Yeah, but you know it's 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 interesting because you know we 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 take a look at the markets and of course Vancouver was leading the charge for a while and then Toronto kind of stepped up and you know Toronto leads the charge and Vancouver had it's a little bit of adjustment as we know foreign buyer tax and it, it seems that it seems that the uh, BC market continues and you know to to try to squash any kind of advancement to the point where. You know, can you can you kind of give us an update? What's happening in the BC market? Are, are you starting to feel some inkling of spring in it? I mean, after all, we're only uh, what are we twenty five days out from the first day of spring. So, yeah. do, do you feel do you feel a real estate market happening? Uh, well, we don't feel it yet. <laughs> we really don't feel it yet. It feels very chilly right now, both in the weather and in the market itself. Um, it's it's going to be a telling spring, and I think that um, you know the BC budget just came down. There was absolutely no new initiatives. Uh, you know, they talked a lot about affordable housing, and but none of the initiatives were really to help this sort of flagging real estate market that's out there. In fact, they touted the fact that it slowed right down and come to a sort of grinding halt as um, evidence of their effective measure, measures when it comes to taxing and taxation of, you know, uh, vacant houses and foreign buyers and houses over $3 million and, and what have you. So um, has it worked? Yes. It certainly has worked. Has it worked too much? I, I think now that there's a lot more people jumping on that bandwagon, I think a lot more people are saying, we've really ground it to a halt. Do you understand what we've done to the economy here? Um, and it becomes a concern because all of Canada's economy is slowing down. It's not It's not growing as fast as we predicted, so... Yeah, and I mean, obviously, that's one of the one of the reasons why the Bank of Canada is not jumping on the rate increase right yeah. now. But you know, Ramona, one of the one of the things that you know, and and you made an interesting point that you know the BC government seems to be clucking. You know, yeah. they're sitting there saying, "Look at us! Look at what we did! Look at what we did!" But yet, they still haven't really solved the affordability or the inventory issues. And yeah. yet, that you know, they feel that. Well, since they put the thumb on the big bad people that were investing, or for the matter, you know, the people that just had earned their way to the top, you know, just from sheer ownership for years. I mean, you and I both know that, uh, you know, prices have escalated, obviously, over the last 10, 15, 20 years in any, any one of these major marketplaces. But the people that actually had ownership for that long a period of time, you know, why can they not or why should they not actually, you know, enjoy the fruits of their labor and... You know, 
that. Meanwhile, it's like you've got a government body here that's sitting there saying, no, 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 you you can't have that much wealth. You're not allowed to yeah. because it's not affordable for everybody else. So, you know, it, it's almost, um, you know, and I'm going to talk to you about an article in a second, but it's almost like, you know, people are begrudging people success or money, even if they've owned something for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I'm very disturbed by this idea that, you know, if you have a vacation property, I think this is this is the sort of the crux of it. If you're a Canadian and you own a vacation property and you don't rent it out because you use it, suddenly if you're living in B.C. and that vacation property is in B.C. or if you're living outside of B.C. and your vacation property is in B.C., you agree you're going to pay more tax. Um, it, it seems almost counterintuitive because for the longest time, Canadian governments across the board, municipal, provincial, federal, have incentivized Canadians to put their wealth back in Canada, either buying Canadian uh, shares in Canadian companies and they get a, a better tax uh, benefit, or buying real estate. And now all of a sudden, after all these decisions, it's sort of like you're retroactively now penalizing people that made decisions 10, 15, 20 years ago, where they could have put their money elsewhere. It, it, I, I don't like that. I don't like those sort of retroactive um, policies. And that's what it is. It's a retroactive policy. You made a decision 20 years ago, now we're retroactively penalizing. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, one of the, one of the things that I caught this week, and I, and I'm not going to quote the, um, I'll call it the artist, not not the author, the artist of this this fine piece of literature. Um, it, it was very much just saying that uh, you know uh, because because we are not up to date with money laundering. Uh, that the foreigners are destroying the affordability in Canada's market, and all, you know, all the way to the point where um, you know they they've actually they've they've made a real big point of saying, and 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 this is probably the one that I I, I struggle the most with, is that you know since prices have risen, you know it's if you go and do your comparison to income to pricing, if you consider that, then we're way out of whack. So so we need to pull the prices back because the income levels have not gone up at the same level. Is that not the point of investing in real estate, both for a primary residence or for future you know, uh, use of, as an investment property, is the fact that we should see equity appreciation, and yet now we're being, we're being scolded that you know, income versus price is not correct, so we need to pull the prices back? Yeah, I know, and I've heard this argument, and I've actually argued against this argument. I've said, you know, why is that the gold standard for measuring real estate um, value? Why do we think that it has to, you know, be somehow tied to income? In terms of affordability, it does. But there are loads of places in the world where real estate is not affordable. It's passed down from generation to generation, and new money has to come in in order to afford it. London, UK, um, Paris, France, uh, we've, there's certain places, Sydney, um, and Melbourne in, in Australia. They have implemented measures so that people that with a stronger dollar can't come in and sort of flood their market and locals can't afford it. So there are affordability measures, but there's not this sort of artificial tie to income so that people are penalized for the equity appreciating in real estate. So I, I actually agree with you. I don't think that we should always be looking at this affordability income versus housing prices as the gold standard. I think at some point North Americans have to grow up, and I, I mean North Americans. <laughs> I think we have to grow up and realize Real estate isn't just a right where we have to live. It's also an asset. And around the world, with much older communities and much older cities, they've realized that and allowed their real estate to appreciate uh, above 
I mean, I know that there's places in India, Mumbai, for example, where families can't afford because it's passed down from, down from generation to generation. And if you look at income to housing properties, it rivals New York City. So there are lots of places in the world where this income and housing affordability isn't the gold standard measure. And I think Canada has to grow up and realize we have to move past it. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's brilliantly put because is it a right or a privilege? And, you know, so not everybody should have the right to to own 3000 square feet. Maybe they only have the ability to own a thousand. And, and you know, I, I know people are going to jump up and down on this one because, oh, yeah. you know, they're going, <laughs> gonna well, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? I should be able to have this. No, but, you know, there, there there's the the effort that's put in and and everybody wants, you know, you know, let's throw out a big group hug in Kumbaya. But the truth is, is that. You know, people have to earn certain things, and mm-hmm. it shouldn't be that everybody is given, you know, a, the Taj Mahal house, because quite frankly, you know, that's not right. Okay, we, 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 all things are not equal in the world, okay, but your your ability or the opportunities can be equal. It just doesn't mean that if without the effort, you can't get there. And so, you know, I, I do struggle with the the analogy. Um, Ramada, we're going to go to a, a quick break, but when we come back, I, I do want to delve a little bit deeper into um, the idea that uh, you know we've we've got money laundering in Canada. I want to talk mm-hmm. to you from a real estate perspective of how you know there is the FinTrack forms and what people have to fill out when they're doing a an actual real estate transaction. So, uh, folks, we're going to be right back with Ramada King, and uh, stay with us. And welcome back. If you're just tuning in, my guest right now is Romana King, and she is the director of content at Zolo. Uh, she's a real estate expert, uh, you know, one of my favorite guests. Uh, she's on uh, once a month with me uh, doing the Real Estate Talk Triangle with Greg Bennell. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about an article that I picked up on and I was kind of, uh, you know, not sure about the money laundering uh, by foreigners and it's destroying our housing affordability. Um, you know, in this article, uh, just so you know, uh, Ramada, there was a few things that keyed on that, you know, they're, they're of course, want to post some blame to people. And it's a lot of times they talk about the gatekeepers, the lawyers, the realtors. But as I, and, and you've been, you know, a, a licensed realtor, you, you sit there and you look at it and say, well, hang on, uh, we have forms that we have to fill out for identification, which are called FinTrack. And we have to follow rules and regulations to make sure that there is not foreign buyers or that at least there's being disclosed if they are. Yeah, I mean, the forms are fairly straightforward. I think we've used them for, you know, quite some time now. And and like anything, like any profession, there are a few people that either don't follow the rules, you know, because they're naive or because of ignorance. There's a few people that try and skirt the rules because of, you know, profiteering. But for the most part, I think that most people are filling out these forms correctly and foreign buyers are not slipping through the cracks in this way. There, there's a lot of other ways that they can sort of skirt the rules, but not in this way. There's, I mean, there's an incentive for Canadians. Um, so if I'm selling a house or if I'm buying a house, there's a big incentive to make sure those forms are accurate because if you're stuck with a house and it's a foreign buyer that sold that house and they didn't pay those taxes, you're now responsible for it. So, you know, there's going to be a big fat lawsuit on that realtor if, uh, if that happens. So there's a big incentive. And so I think for the most part, majority of those forms are filled out accurately. There are some audits and we find some anomalies or some problems. And every once in a while, we do find a brokerage that isn't doing it correctly. And there, you know, there's multiple fines and sometimes licenses are lost. 
Yeah. You know, one of, one of the things that I, I caught in this article, they said, um, you know, where real estate prices have soared above affordable levels for locals, they think that they, you should buy, ban all foreign ownership altogether, uh, citing that this has been done in several other countries. Um, you know, I struggle with that because the level of control, I mean, you know, some of these other countries, you know, if you start talking about population, I mean, you know, they have 10, 20, 50 times the population of Canada, of course, Canada being a relatively small uh, population uh, in the world, considering our geographical size. And yet, you know, we're trying to encourage, you know, people to come in. And a lot of times that starts with a foreign buyer coming in, buying properties here in Canada, and then deciding to bring their family or a business over to Canada. I mean, are we not just shooting ourselves in the foot if we start taking that mindset and saying, I'm sorry, if, if, if the, the local person can't afford it, then you should not be able to buy in here. I mean, it's a very fine balance, and I think you're right. There are countries that have banned foreign ownership, and, and a lot of them actually are, are developing countries because it's a lot easier for people in developed countries to go in and use their strong dollar. But in developed countries like Canada, Australia, U.S., I think the the, the measures to prevent overbuying, I guess, from, from people outside of Canada have to be very strategic. I think what's What's interesting is that a lot of these, you know, war cries now against the foreign buyer, um, the, the most recent one where they said, you know, it's absolutely destroying Canadian real estate, you know, foreign buyers. They're based on, on information that may be somewhat outdated. I think the, the recent one in the Financial Post talked about, you know, um, uh, a U.N. publication. Well, that U.N. publication came out in September 2016, and the, 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 so the tagline for that was Canada has a strong anti-money laundering and combating the, financial, uh, the financing of terrorism regime, which achieves good results in some areas but requires further improvement. That doesn't say we're terrible and foreign buyers are destroying it because of money laundering. It says we're doing good. We need to tighten up some holes. And so I think right now there's a lot of sentiment against uh, corruption for other reasons <laughs> in Canada. There's a lot of sentiment against foreign buyers because there's an affordability crisis, and we want one big blanket solution to deal with this. And the problem we have is that there isn't one big blanket solution to deal with it. There are regional problems with very focused um, issues. So Vancouver's issue is vastly different than Toronto's issue. There are some overlap, but it is different. There are different people uh, coming in for different reasons and buying up different uh, types of property. I know Toronto, there was an issue, and there still is an issue, with commercial real estate. Vancouver's only just beginning to experience commercial and industrial real estate uh, buying by foreign investors. So we've got to be careful about this sort of blanket solution approach. Yeah. the um, One of the hottest topics, of course, over the last, I would say, you know, 13 months was the stress test. And yeah. of course, one of the reasons why I want to talk to you a little bit more in depth about it is the fact that, you know, people understanding that, you know, what, what, the, what the bank rate is set at, and then they have to qualify for 2% above that because they believe that, you know, again, they think that with increasing rates, people are going to put themselves into too far into debt. But one of the things that they didn't put on, and, and I want your take on it, is the, uh, a pressure valve for renewal. So, mm -hmm. you know, let, let, let's take your typical homeowner and let's say, you know, they're coming up for renewal in the next six months on a mortgage that they have been paying, you know, on time for the last, you know, four and a half years. Okay. And they've made every single payment. Yes, they have, you know, 20% plus equity into the property. 
And they're looking, and the bank's not quite playing ball. They had bad service. They have not, you know, seen eye to eye with them. And they decide that they want to move to another bank. Well, if they do that, they now have to fall under the stress test. And yet, you know, there's no there's no wiggle room on this because yet they've they've been maintaining a this property, the debt for the last four and a half years with substantial money down, and they have to now incur a stress test. I, I, I think they've got it wrong. I think that, you know, I understand new people coming into it. You know, we got to be careful that, you know, just out of the gate, they're not swinging for the fences. But ultimately, in the end, I mean, what about the people that just, they don't want to be with this bank. They, they want to move all their stuff over to another bank. They can't do it without incurring the stress test. Oh, and I, I relate to that sentiment. I've left a bank in a huff <laughs> over a dispute over $60 and moved all my business over to another bank. So I, I absolutely relate to that. And I think that there is a problem. You know, if you've got skin in the game, if you've got 20 plus percent equity in a home and you've got that much skin in the game, you're going to stress test yourself. You're going to make sure you can make those payments and figure out a way and to sort of penalize uh, a renewal from moving from bank to bank, from shopping around, from competition. You know, our whole demo- economic democracy here is based on competition. And to penalize them from doing that, I think, is a problem. And it is a, it, 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 there is a problem with it. They do face a penalty. If you jump from bank to bank, um, first of all, your bank, may, it may become more competitive or it may not because it may realize, you know what, you know, you've changed jobs and now you don't have a two-year history with your current employer, which is going to be a mark against your credit. You've uh, struck out on your own on your own business and you're doing well, but you don't have two-year tax returns um, for that business. That's going to be a, a knock against your credit. And all of these other life circumstances are going to hurt your credit or hurt your, your credit profile for when you go to renew because that is what's taken into consideration when you renew for a mortgage or when you get a mortgage. And I really don't like that because you make those decisions when you have finally sort of settled the housing issue. When you've bought in and you've got skin in the game, now you're going to make those other decisions. Do I go out on business on my own? Am I going to change employers? Am I going to do other things? And I agree with you. I, I have not liked this idea that banks are almost holding people hostage once they renew because, uh, you know, these banks have a monopoly on it now. Yeah. And, and it is, it, it becomes difficult because, you know, somebody wants to do a move or, or for that matter, they've built up enough equity in their property that they decide they're going to sell it. And maybe, you know, they, they want to get another bedroom, like a bigger, a, bit, a little bigger house. Mm-hmm. Again, talking about the skin in the game, I think this is so important that, you know, I, I think they totally missed on this one, especially when you have a track record. You know, why can't somebody who owned a million dollar house or a $750,000 house, they're running with 30, 40% equity. Why can they not move without incurring the stress test? Because basically they're saying, nope, you can't move and and you can't move banks if you if you don't requalify at a higher rate i i just think that they've got it wrong and i think they've got to do something about it because we're not solving anything when we're when we're penalizing the people that actually have the ability of moving up and that's where if they want to free up some inventory you yeah. know what you got to free up the people that can move up <laughs> if you if you stymie that a segment of the of the market then how the first time buyer is going to get in and that's a really good point yeah and and you know i'm not i'm, I'm not sure that they're going to get the get it right um just a just a quick note uh something that was mentioned canadian real estate market outlook for 2019 stable but struggling 
Um, quick note, quick comments from you. What do you think? Are we are we 2019 going to just kind of be a whole hum kind of real estate market? Yeah, I, I remember reading in a report from uh, one of the banks a couple of years ago, and they said, you know, the next decade is going to be uh, stagnant appreciation. And basically, we're going to go back to historical norms of like 2% appreciation on real estate each year. I think we're in it. I think this is it. I don't think there's going to be a massive crash. I don't think 2019 is going to see, you know, massive dips anywhere. I think we're just going to limp along. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we know from cycles that when things sort of correct and reposition themselves, it's a great time for value investors, you know, people that want to see a value in the dollar to go in, um, to put their sweat equity in or to, you know, invest in a place and, and you know, get some equity out, cash flow positive and, and look at the equity in the long term. So they're building equity in the long term. They're not going to, you know have the crazy appreciation of the last decade, but sometimes it's not about a crazy appreciation. You talk to any economist or any personal finance uh, advisor, and they'll say, you know, volatility is, is the death knell. You want steady and stable. And I think we're now in the steady and stable. We're going to go into 2019 real estate year with a flatline approach to appreciation. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You know what? I, I, I think it'll be good for everybody to kind of get recentered and get grounded yeah. and uh, and we can move forward from there. Well, listen, Romano, it's always a pleasure talking to you uh, about our favorite topic. And uh, I guess we're going to be talking in a few weeks when we do the yeah. uh, real estate talk triangle again. But thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Todd. So, folks, that was Ramana King, and there goes another hour. I have to tell you, when you get the right guests on, uh, the hour just flies by. Uh, speaking of, I want to thank Mike Sackman from Cyreg Management, uh, Sean Ziegelstein from Royal LePage, and Romana King, Director of Content at Zolo. Uh, always a pleasure to have great guests on. I want to thank Ian, my producer. He always makes it simple for me every single week, and I want to thank you for tuning in, of course. And uh, don't forget the Simple Seminar coming up this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Go to thesimpleinvestor.com to register. You don't want to miss out. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. I'm back next Saturday at 3 p.m. You've been listening to Simply Real Estate right here on News Talk 1010.